Welcome to Beyond the Ivory Tower, Conversations on Journalism, with Sandra Banyats and Phoebe Mares. Hi, I'm Sandra. And my name is Phoebe. And you're listening to Beyond the Ivory Tower, Conversations on Journalism, a podcast series where we want to talk about current research in journalism. Things got a little busy with work, so we took a little longer to produce this episode, but we're back. <laughs> I was asked to go there and my contract in Vienna ran out. Um, I had a five-year contract here. And um, after four years, you know, a headhunter company called me and said, would you be interested to become the second highest position of the American Northwestern University in Qatar? Well, and I felt A, super honored, of course, that they were thinking of me and B, it was just the right time, right? Because otherwise I would have been retired. The person you just heard was Klaus Schönbach, Senior Associate Dean and Professor in Residence at the Northwestern University of Qatar. We had the chance to speak with him this past summer when he visited our department at the University of Vienna to present some of his recent work. And we will hear more from him in a minute. But first, let's say a little bit about Qatar. This tiny country is part of the MENA region, which includes the Middle East and Northern Africa. It has about 4.5 million inhabitants, of which 88% are foreign guest workers from India, Nepal, Pakistan, but also European countries and the US. Due to its petroleum and gas industry, Qatar is also immensely rich and has 11 universities, of which six alone are franchises of US universities. What makes Qatar special is that only about 300,000 inhabitants have Qatari citizenship and that healthcare, electricity and water are free. Moreover, the government invests in all sorts of infrastructure, creating this bubble where everything is taken care of for citizens. Yet, Qatar is a monarchy that, as Klaus said, practices restricted tolerance. So what does journalism look like in such a country? I mean, what might motivate young people to study journalism? About 50% of our students are from Qatar. Um, the other 50% come from Pakistan, from India, from Saudi Arabia, from Jordan, for instance, Egypt, many Egyptians. And so, and they could make a difference, right? I mean, Pakistan is a democratic country, probably not super democratic but it's okay and India is a democratic country and everything but um, I think there are um, several reasons for why journalists are not or journalism is not your choice for um, your life you know for the purpose of your life or everything I mean first of all it's going down the drains all over the world as we know so it's nothing special in, in the Arab world um, newsrooms are shrinking as we know um, f money invested into investigative journalism for instance is disappearing and everything and the same applies to the Arab world And but it's also a matter of prestige you know, those, those Pakistanis and Indians 
and Egyptians often have been in Qatar for quite a while because their parents are Indian architects, Pakistani doctors, and things like that. And they've they've seen, you know, that um, journalism has a very low prestige in terms of this is something for guest workers from India. But why is it that journalism is so devalued in Qatar? Klaus believes this is the case all over the world and it's also due to the plummeting of job positions and opportunities. Everywhere. The number of students kind of studying journalism is, is really um, uh, decreasing tremendously. If, One of the reasons I, met, I already mentioned, of course, is that the possibilities to be employed as a journalist are also shrinking. And, you know, when you're a student um, in your first year, for instance, you do not have this idea, I will get a, a guaranteed position in one of those many newspapers, many television stations and their newsrooms and everything. This is what young people, of course, are observing, what's going on, right? Um, also, I'm, I'm not making a lot of money, right? And for for our students, this, the, the idea to work in a PR agency or in an advertising agency, in a marketing company, is obviously more exciting. If you know what I mean, it's more, it's more. There's more variety. That's what students believe. As there, there is. Still, or again, this kind of green shade idea of journalists, journalism, right? These are people kind of sitting behind their desks, drinking a lot, <laughs> and all things like that, and, and, and grinding out newspaper articles on their old typewriter or so, right? Whereas public relations, not, that's not true, of course, as we know, uh, whereas public relations is, you know, every day something different. Today I may do public relations for for a dairy company, tomorrow for a hospital, you know, things like that. I think that also plays a role. And this kind of societal function of, um, of um, journalism that in the past has kind of compensated for the exciting nature of changing topics every day in a PR agency is probably not that enticing for for this this generation you know they don't care that much which is also at least in Qatar itself true to the political situation there I mean you you cannot change the system right you can make sure that the traffic is a little better or so right and that hospitals work better you know which is not bad right but you cannot change the political system or you know fight for more freedom of expression or so Journalism research already acknowledges that there seems to be a broadening of journalistic functions and that nourishing democratic processes and informing on politics is only one aspect of a broad field. Lifestyle journalism, for example, is increasingly important, especially in flourishing countries like Qatar, where money to be spent is available. But it is not only increasing in Qatar, but also across the entire MENA region and in some countries more than in others. This is also reflected in an interesting study from Klaus and his colleagues that showed that contrary to our impression of the Arabic Spring, 
blogging in the MENA region isn't just political. What we didn't find is that there are no bloggers that kind of influence politics, of course. But the idea, you know, that the majority of the bloggers kind of use, uses this wonderful, new, anonymous, if you want to, to do that that way, um, uh, instrument, you know, to, to voice um, opinions that are not out there, some, whatever, that, that this would be not a mass phenomenon, but that's something that you would, in a huge sample like ours, you know, you would find at least a couple hundred people you know, among the 6,000 or so, right? I mean, this is the advantage of huge samples. You should find everything, right? If it's, if it's there to some, at least to some extent. And we didn't. What we found is, you know, that those who blog a lot are simply people who love the internet and do a lot of things on the internet. So they also blog. We were really disappointed because we tried hard. We, 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 we were using, you know, kind of political, you, you saw some of the political opinions that we were asking about. Is your country in the right direction, the right direction? Um, uh, should government be criticized and everything? All these variables are in there. And it's not the case that if people thought the government should be criticized, they blog. <laughs> no. Some of them block, some don't. Our mistake could be it's, is that it, it was a mass phenomenon. Of, of course, always you, you may have like five revolutionary bloggers in Egypt and they changed, you know, the course of the country. Absolutely possible. But that's it, as far as we can tell. Five, <laughs> you know. So what do audiences in Qatar expect from journalists? I think it's more an information expectation, you know, kind of being informed about the world, your home country, India plays a role, for instance, Indonesia, the Philippines, there are a lot of people from the Philippines. So, for, for instance, newspapers have a whole page on the Philippines and a couple of pages on India and everything. I think that's, that's what most people expect from newspapers. Newspapers in a country like Qatar are not regarded as fighting for me or something like that. And the reason is always the same. Uh, the 250,000 citizens don't need anybody to fight for them. Actually, you might even say it's something that, I, uh, that also struck me. There is some participation. Uh, the tribes, you know, the tribes. The tribes still have a say. They have majlis, which is a gathering of the tribe or smaller groups of the tribes. And they're drinking tea together and kind of thinking about politics and everything that really exists not a parliament but you know there's some political participation and for them that's enough because the rest of of their lives is taken care of so so benevolently <laughs> i'm tempted to say the benevolent dictator comes to mind <laughs> streets are there hospitals are there there's constant building the hospitals are getting better and better and surgeons from the u.s are bought and whatever it's so uh, there, there's not, not much, you know, what a newspaper could fight for, if you know what I mean. Now, it's different for the, the, um, the Nepalese and the Indonesians and the Philippines and the, the Indians, but they don't have a say in the country anyway. I mean, a newspaper fighting for them, well, yeah. I mean, if you, if you make so much more money in Qatar... Um, compared to what you would do at home and you're super happy to be there and not expelled, you keep your mouth shut, right, don't you? 
research in countries with varying degrees of freedom of speech can bring challenges. Like for example, when questions in a comparative study cannot be asked in one country, as was the case in Egypt. How do we work with that? I mean, we have to accept it because the rest of the data is interesting enough, of course. You know, it's very, I admit this is a very instrumental and pragmatic um, answer. The, I, I think, you know, behind this is, it's, is a much more principled question, uh, a question that is constantly actually discussed and constantly reflected upon um, at my department is, should we be here? <laughs> you know, I mean that if 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 you're if you work in a country, um, yeah, that is not a democratic country. Um, it, it's not a violently repressive country either, of course. You 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 could say well the the issue that question X cannot be asked in country Y or something like that is subordinate you know to to the major question that shouldn't we boycott all these countries period right and obviously we are not boycotting them right and we are not even boycotting very much worse countries such as china or so i mentioned that as an example it's it's a very important question i mean pragmatically we simply we cope with that by saying okay well two questions not in in egypt but 98% well you know can be asked, so we do that. But it's it, it's causing a headache. You can imagine, right? It, often, you know, we, we think, okay, hmm, should we be more principled here? Like Egypt is excluded. For instance, Egypt was excluded this year, and they caved in kind of after half a year. So there will be an addendum this year with Egypt. Should we have done that? Hmm, good question. Despite these challenges, researching the MENA region offers great insights, not only as a particular part of the world, but also in comparison to other well-researched regions. Yeah, I mean, the studies that we've done so far are always taking into account, of course, you know, an outside view. I mean, we, the idea is, why would you want to know about media use in Egypt if you cannot, if there's no theory behind it? And the idea is, you know, we're working, we're, we're comparing Egypt to other countries. And then, for instance, now I'm this this health communication study that I just mentioned, I just I'm just analyzing it and to give you an idea what we are interested in. The same study had been done in the U.S. last year, and what we find out is that Qatari young people use more sources for health communication if they think their friends are concerned about their health, not their own concerns their friends. If they are concerned about their health, I can show a high correlation between that perception of my environment and using a number of sources. And we think this is, of course, subjective norms, theory of reason, action, stuff like that, but it's also cultural. It's a relationship-based culture. 
And we think, you know, the data are fresh. Last week I began to analyze them. But we think that in the U.S., for instance, it's the other way around. If you are concerned about your health, you use sources. If you're concerned about the health of your friends, that's not unimportant for you, but that's not the major, the major incentive, right? Why am, I, why am I saying this? I'm saying it because uh, this is what makes the study interesting. The study is not interesting to find out. Kaduri youth, ah, oh, yeah, they use more, you know, knowledge of their friends, you know, to determine their health information behavior. Yeah, so what? So we're nearing the end of this podcast, but as always, we wanted to know what are some of the most pressing research areas in Klaus's opinion? I th you know, where I'm working now, um, one of the most pressing questions is the one that I'm working on uh, in, in that health communication project. Qatar is one of the most unhealthiest countries in the world. 74% of the Qatari population is overweight, 74%. And that also applies to kids already. And the reason is, you know, that uh, their grand grandparents were Bedouins and you, there was not enough food. And now there's Kentucky Fried Chicken all everywhere around the corner and a lot of sweets and everything. Um, diabetes is particularly bad in a country, you know, that eats so much sweets. Um, Ramadan now is contributing to this the so-called iftar meal, which is the fast-breaking meal when the sun goes down, often consists of all these baklava and, you know, and all these other sweets that the, the Arabs are famous for, and perfect and fine and everything, but people eat much too much of that. Diabetes, uh, smoking is still a problem. Um, shishas, you know, people think shishas are healthy. They are not. Cigarettes are healthier, actually. Um, All these um, um, mental health is a huge problem because of inbreeding in Qatar. You know, people married, marrying in the same tribe and everything. Um, so I think, you know, to invest into um, not making people aware of all these dangers to their physical health is the problem because nobody thinks that smoking is healthy, I think. The people of that kind don't exist anymore, I think. But, you know, kind of nudging them, kind of making them, convincing them to change their lifestyles. And this is what we're trying to do, and I think this is really important. So that was it for this edition. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. And if you want to know more about Klaus's work, you can go to the Northwestern University of Qatar webpage. And if you'd like to know more about our research, you can find us at the Journalism Studies Center at the University of Vienna. Our website is journalismstudies.univie.ac.at. There you can also find information on the rest of our team, Daniel Nolleke and Hannah Siegel, led by Volker Hanusch. And also our contact details if you'd like to get in touch with us. You can also follow us on Twitter at JSC Vienna and on Facebook at Journalism Studies UniV. We hope you will be around for our next podcast where we will be talking with Alyosha Karim Shapals on live blogging and new forms of journalism. The music you heard today comes from Blue Dot Sessions. And we also want to thank Lisa Kiesenhofer again for lending us her beautiful voice and also Radio Campus for lending us their equipment. 
My name is Sandra. And I'm Phoebe. Until next time. Until next time.